You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 12. Here we are considering Veritatis Splendor, Chapter 2, Section 4, in a section entitled The Moral Act. It is in general, dedicated to the topic of teleology. That's a technical term in moral theology, which deals with the end-directedness of action, the end-directedness of a life. Telos is a Greek word for end or goal, and its Latin translation was phenis. So as I was explaining at the end of Lecture 11, it is very, very typical of Catholic moral theology to think about the three places, the three aspects of the moral analysis of a deliberate human act. And what Catholic moral theology insists is that the proper moral analysis of any freely chosen act must consider the finis operantis, usually translated the end of the agent, or perhaps more simply the intention. Secondly, the circumstances all the situational factors, including the consequences that flow from an act. And thirdly, the finis operis, usually translated the end of the action, but then, for short, the object. I suspect that that use of terminology in moral theology, the object of an act, can be a little confusing, and hence the efforts to be really clear about this by John Paul II, by the Catechism of the Catholic Church, by anybody trying to reflect on this. And I would strongly urge you, as you listen to these lectures and read the text of Veritatis Splendor, to try to get a clear account of what this threefold analysis of a moral act involves. If you get clear on this, I think you will be able to parse virtually any text in Catholic moral theology. It recurrently appears within the various texts of all the contemporary authors, all the medieval authors. It is something that is extremely central to how the Catholic moral theology tradition handles this matter. But it's, a, it's an area where there is very easy to have unintentional misunderstandings, let alone to have some of these erroneous trends that Pope John Paul II is warning us about. And if there is a particularly slippery notion, I suspect that it's that term, the object. Because when I say the object of an action, it can easily sound like I'm talking about a physical object someplace out there, or it can easily sound like I'm talking about a process or an event. Both of those things could be involved. There could be physical objects that are of concern. There could be processes and events that are of concern. But what we are talking about here, and I'll try to say it several times whenever it seems relevant, what we are talking about when we're dealing with the object of an action is the kind of action that something is. Not talking about just any physical action like a sneeze, but a human action that is something that is deliberate and intentional. And so that when I have any deliberation and intentionality in my action, it's the type of action that I'm performing that is of concern here. They call that in moral theology the object of the action, the finis operis, that is the end which is already pertinent to the action. Let me take one or two examples just to help clarify the terminology before I settle into a discussion of the fourth part of section two. 
Let me take a somewhat controversial one, namely contraception, because it's something that often proves to be a source of great controversy, a source of great wonderment, a source of of great puzzlement to some people, and hence needs constantly to have our consideration. Whatever the intention of the couple, an act of contraception by itself, whatever their own intention in using it, an act of contraception intends to make it impossible for there to be the union of the gametes, the union of egg and sperm, so that procreation will take place. Now, why might one want to do that? One might want to do that because one doesn't want any children, or one doesn't want any children now, or one wants greater space between the children, or because one is concerned for the health of the mother, or because one is... There could be many, many, many reasons. That's the Phoenix operantis, that is the intention of the agents, and that deserves to be examined. What this section is considering is the Phoenix operis, that is, what the action is going to bring about, and if it is a deliberate human act, it is the reason for saying that there's a moral evaluation, a moral character to that particular action. I hope that that example clarifies the definition. I will try to return to it from time to time as we go forward here. Using, then, the distinction that we have been laboring to make clear between merely a physical operation, on the one hand, the actus actus hominis, and on the other hand, the actus humanus, the human act, something that is deliberate and intentional, what John Paul II is talking about in section 4 of chapter 2 is the way in which we need to look at all three aspects of moral analysis in order to understand properly how to bring consideration of consequences and of end-directedness into focus for the sake of a good moral analysis. That is, we are always going to have to consider consequences, but we need to know the proper place in which they should be considered. Any particular human act is something that produces changes. And what Ron Paul II mentions at paragraph 71 is that any human act, it could be, for instance, the act to cover my mouth when I sneeze, it could be the act of choosing to eat a healthy diet or to choose to eat some junk food, it could be the action in which I say something meaningful and I'm intending to convince somebody by my speech, it could be the lie that I might be tempted to tell in the course of being meaningful and persuasive in my speech. Whatever the nature of the human action, It has an effect upon those who experience it. It also has an effect upon the agent. So, for example, if I change my my example here from the sexual examples that I was giving now to the example of speech. When I say something, not only to you here in the lecture that I'm delivering, but perhaps in ordinary conversation, presumably what I say has some effect upon my listener. This will be true of all human speech. They might choose to ignore me. They might choose to listen carefully. They might choose to take it with a grain of salt. They might come to understand the meaning of what I said, etc., etc. But in addition to all the things that might be the effects upon others, there also is an effect upon the agent. Let's just take the case of a lie as an example to try to make this point clear. Supposing I'm using my speech to try to tell a lie. 
In doing so, if I'm a good liar, I suppose I might get away with it. I might communicate whatever I communicate by my words to the person to whom I'm speaking. I would presumably, if I'm telling a lie, say something which is untrue in order to deceive somebody who presumably has a right to know. And in telling a lie, I presumably I've done those three things, I'm having the effect on that person. Now, it's very important, to, of course, to define our terms carefully. Let me reflect on that for just a minute without getting distracted. Certainly lies involve telling untruth, but that's not enough of a definition of a lie, right? I could be telling a joke, and any time I tell a joke, I probably say something that's untrue, and I expect a person to laugh precisely because they see the discrepancy between what I said and what I meant. So there's, there's an element of untruth in a lie, but that's not enough to define it. Secondly, it's an element of, there's a statement of what is untrue, intending to deceive. So that element of deception, whether I succeed or not, it depends on how good or bad a liar I might be. But the idea of a lie from within is that I'm intending to deceive somebody. Of course, in a game, I often will make a move that is untrue, like a feint you know, on a football field. If you jog this way, but you're really going to go that way, you're hoping to get the defender off guard. I might be intending to deceive the defender, but it's a question of somebody who has a right to know. And within the rules of a game, we say, oh, well, it's okay to make little bluffs and feints. That's how the game is played. But in the actual circumstances of life, we presume in ordinary conversation that the person to whom I'm speaking has the right to know what it is that I'm intending in a truthful way. And that's why we regard a lie as so absolutely horrible. That is, it's an injustice to the person who actually has a right. I don't have to speak at all, but if I choose to speak, I can't lie. One does need to include that third perspective, I think, in the definition of a lie, because sometimes people have no right to know. The famous case of Nazis knocking on the door looking for Jews hidden in the basement. I think one could presumably say that that is not a lie in the moral sense of the word if one tells them an untruth intending to deceive them because by virtue of the nature of that government they have now turned and started to attack their own citizens and they have lost the right to know. I think that's an exceptional circumstance. But in that particular case, I suspect the Catholic tradition is very right in suggesting that not everybody has a right to know. One could forfeit the right to know by their deliberate circumvention of all morality and their attacks on the human person in the way that that government did. But let me not get lost on the details of defining a lie. Presume with, we, with me, if you will, for a moment, that a lie is telling an untruth with the intention to deceive those who have a right to know. The notion of a lie is, is that it's a form of speech which will have an effect externally upon those who hear it. That's certainly some of the consequences that one must consider. And yet it also has an effect upon the person. If I tell one lie, I am already a liar. If I tell a series of lies, I become more and more of a liar. That is, we have to, in the proper moral analysis, of a particular action, look at the intention, that's one thing. We have to look at the circumstances, such as does the person have a right to know. But thirdly, we must look upon the way in which any particular action does have an effect. 
And what we're suggesting by that example, and John Paul II, by his general treatment of the topic, is suggesting we do have to take those things into consideration. And further, some actions will be regarded, they'll have to be regarded, as intrinsically evil, because the effect they have will always be deleterious to the dignity of a person. Much of what we'll be considering here in Lecture 12, Lecture 13, and Lecture 14, while we work our way through Section 4 of Chapter 2, is this incredibly important topic that deals with whether a certain kind of action can ever be ordered to the goal and the good of a human person. The goal of human life is ultimately the praise, reverence, and service of God our Lord doing his will. In the course of investigating the moral evaluation, the moral character of any action, what we have to ask is, can a given human action of a given kind be ordered toward that goal, let alone toward any of the other worthwhile goals about the dignity of a person as made in the image and likeness of God. What John Paul II claims to find with, in company with the tradition of Catholic moral theology is that there are some types of actions that can never be properly ordered to that goal. They can never give due honor and praise to God. They can never really respect the dignity of the person. Toward the end of this chapter, he will call those things intrinsically evil. And those things which are intrinsically evil, according to Catholic moral theology, are forbidden always and everywhere. This is why we say any true act of murder, the deliberate taking of innocent human life, is absolutely forbidden. This is why we say in Catholic moral theology that adultery is always and everywhere wrong, no matter what the intention of the agent, no matter what consequences might be hoped to come by trading off one's sexual intercourse with somebody other than one's spouse in return for some favor. The notion of Catholic moral theology is there are certain actions which are intrinsically evil, which can never, under any circumstances, no exceptions, be done or tolerated morally. In making that strong claim, Catholic moral theology is respecting the dignity of the person and the end to which human dignity is ordered, the proper praise, reverence, and service of God our Lord. What John Paul II is undertaking in this fourth section is a critique of those who deny that position. There are various schools of thought in contemporary moral theology which are inclined to deny that there are any intrinsic evils, and hence to deny that in the abstract we can forbid certain types of action. What those schools of thought tend to do is to say, well, we must evaluate the likely consequences or evaluate the intention of the agent because sometimes the likely consequences or the intention of the agent could outweigh any other factor. John Paul II is studiously opposed to that particular position, and that's the main thrust of this fourth section. What positions are they that take this particular position? Well, in secular ethics, in philosophical ethics, this is the position of utilitarianism. In utilitarianism, there is no action that is by itself intrinsically wrong. In utilitarianism, the main foundational principle is that any particular action that one is considering to undertake should be evaluated 
for its likely consequences. Utilitarians, of course, have enormous sophistication in how they want to do this, beginning with Jeremy Bentham, going on through John Stuart Mill, and then a host of authors in the 20th and now the 21st century. Utilitarians propose very sophisticated forms of the calculus. Just for example, there's a huge difference among utilitarians between what is called rule utilitarians and act utilitarians. An act utilitarian will say, what we must examine is a particular choice right here and right now by one person or by one group, and what we must consider is their particular choice and their particular action, and then we must try to evaluate the consequences for anybody who is affected by that act, including the agent. What the utilitarian wants to do then is to maximize the benefits and to minimize the burdens, given a relatively sophisticated calculus of what kind of pleasure, how intense, what particular kind of pain or burden, how intense, how long-lasting. I mean, they have lots and lots of factors that they would enter into the calculation. But an act utilitarian would do it for a single action with regard to everyone who's affected. A rule utilitarian would attempt to say, well, it's not enough just to deal with this one particular action, but how about considering everybody who would be affected by this type of action? That is, if I do it and I'm the only one doing it, sure, the consequences are small, but what I have to really do if I'm going to be reasonable is consider the way everybody will be affected by this type of action if it were done generally. So utilitarians have ways of being sophisticated, I fully grant. But John Paul II is right to say, at the heart of this form of erroneous thinking within moral theology is the basic utilitarian pattern of reasoning. Notice, the utilitarian is not interested particularly in the intention. The utilitarian is not particularly interested in why a given person might undertake a certain action. The utilitarian is absolutely opposed to considering the type of action with regard to its moral character in and of itself. The only relevant consideration for the utilitarian is the third one. What are the consequences? As much as possible, all the consequences that I can list from either a particular action or a kind of action, if generally done. That is the only consideration that the utilitarian is willing to make. Now, very few moral theologians in the Catholic tradition would be out-and-out -out utilitarians, although underneath the surface, at the level of the way in which the thinking actually occurs, the utilitarian really is the nature and flavor of their thinking. John Paul II explores this in great detail in his book, Love and Responsibility, for he is so mindful that one can fail to do real justice to the dignity of the person if one is deeply ensconced in these utilitarian ways of thinking. If one wants to read more about his critique of utilitarianism, the book I would go to is Love and Responsibility. It does a wonderful job there. Here in Veritatis Splendor, he is mindful that this is a utilitarian way of thinking, but he is in particular focused on the theological versions of this. Usually they go by one of two names, either consequentialism or proportionalism. And in this particular case of consequentialism and proportionalism, what one is thinking about is the way in which moral theologians are using a certain brand of utilitarian thinking. As Catholic theologians in this particular 
approach, usually they're still thinking about wanting to see a charitable result, wanting to see prudence with regard to how we make our decisions. But in thinking about prudence, that is the, the practical wisdom in which we're trying to make a course of action or make a policy and plan in which we're going to have more good consequences than bad consequences, they are utilitarian in that what they're weighing are the consequences and tending to be forgetful of intention and especially forgetful of the nature of the action, that is, its moral species. Looking at consequences, what they are attempting to generally to do is to say, we must consider, even though this is something that has been morally suspect by the church for long generations, don't the consequences really truly make for a reason, a justification for undertaking this? One could think, for instance, about the way in which, uh, in a marriage situation, some people will be consequentialist in their choice or as moral theologians in justifying a choice to use contraception. And what they will say is, well, there are plural values in marriage. There is the value of the unity of a couple. There is the value that is the procreation and the having of a family. But that, what they would urge, all we're doing is weighing these pre-moral values. That is, we're weighing things that it would be nice to have this union. This is why I love my wife. This is why I love my husband. And we're weighing the value of children and the burdens that having a children would be. And attempting to say that what we must consider then are the consequences of this and that that is the real reason why we would undertake either to contracept or not to contracept for all of our marriage or for part of our marriage. I mean to handle this delicately because I know that this is a very, very important consideration. So I'm not pretending here at the moment to do a complete analysis of contraception or a complete analysis of sexual morality. Please don't let me be misunderstood to say that I'm doing that. All I'm trying to do is to give an example of consequentialist reasoning. That is, the effort on the part of some people to say the only relevant consideration here is what are going to be the likely consequences of our making this decision or that decision. My point, as we'll see with John Paul II, is that consequences do have a place. They must be included within our moral analysis, but one can't reduce the moral analysis to just this factor. I hope that I'm clear on that, but I'll say it one more time just to be sure. The point is not that we should exclude considerations of consequences. We must include them. My point is to say we shouldn't limit our analysis to consequences. That is the typical strategy of consequentialism as the brand of utilitarianism that is frequently found within moral theology, an exclusive consideration of just one factor. The proportionalism is a slightly different approach within Catholic moral theology, but it also has a generally utilitarian approach. What proportionalism refers to is when we have an action that we're undertaking and we can foresee the likely consequences and we can foresee that there are consequences that we like, that we would regard as good, but also consequences that we would regard as undesirable or bad. And the question is, does the good outweigh the bad? granting that there will be plural consequences for any particular action. One often finds these sort of situations brought up in questions of medical ethics. For example, if you have someone near the end of life, perhaps not right at the moment of death or immediately preceding, but let's say in the months that come before likely death, one could say, well, the pain is getting more intense. 
And as the pain is getting more intense, there's going to be a need for palliative care, a need for some of the opioid medicines that are presently in use that can truly reduce the pain. The trouble, of course, is that as you reduce the pain, you are likely to reduce consciousness. And a person, of course, with reduced consciousness is ceasing to be able to speak, ceasing to be able to talk or to think, cease to be able to make free choices. Now, in fact, there is really, really good palliative medicine now. Very, very strong, important discoveries have been made, among other things, that for the use of opioid medicines in palliative care, you must keep the person well hydrated. And if you keep the person well hydrated with lots of fluids, you can usually decrease the amount of opioids that are needed for that pain reduction. As such, by reducing the amount of opioid that must be used and letting the person have good fluid circulation, the medicine is carried to the areas which are affected and the pain is reduced with smaller doses, you can increase the consciousness. That is, you can preserve a level where the person is still free, still able to have whatever enjoyment of life there is, but especially free to make his or her peace with the Lord and with their neighbor to deal with family issues and to do all the other business that must be done for a good death. And then in the course of this, there are going to be some trade-offs. Part of what sometimes gets used by those who would prefer to see not so much good palliative care, but see euthanasia, is I think an inappropriate weighing of consequences, saying, ah, there's so much bad, there's so much pain, there's so much difficulty, and, well, what's the real danger of losing a little bit of consciousness and freedom? And there's an effort to try to justify, by simply a calculation of consequences, the relative proportion of good and evil done. Here, too, just as I said about contraception a moment ago, so too about palliative care and euthanasia. I don't claim just now to have presented all that needs to be presented on a complicated case like that. All I mean to do by using those perky examples is merely to suggest we see the impact of considerations about consequences in lots of cases of applied moral theology. And hence, in order to do those applications well, to do them correctly, what we need is a general understanding of the point which John Paul II is attempting to make for us here uh, in his general treatment of teleology. Let me go back to the text a little bit. In paragraph 72 and 73 of section 4, what John Paul II is suggesting that we need to take all three of these factors into consideration when doing moral analysis. We cannot give a full and complete and adequate account merely by looking at consequences, nor can we give a full and complete and adequate account merely by looking at intention. For example, our intentions might be very, very noble, and yet the consequences might turn out to be terrible, and what exactly it is that we do might turn out to be terrible. I've already given the euthanasia case. Let me switch for just a minute to an economic case or two, just to spread around the examples. One of the things that you see frequently in, in discussions of economics is that in the various kinds of market economies where we live, there is often a laissez-faire background. That is, what the principle of a market economist, for the most part, is, is, well, we have the various interplay of the forces in the market. Let's say, for instance, the way in which if a commodity is scarce, its price will tend to rise. If a commodity is relatively 
um, abundant, its price will tend to fall. Now, by itself, that's a pretty useful rule of economics, the law of supply and demand. On the other hand, if you take this to its full extent in a purely laissez-faire situation, I grant that those relatively are very rare that you get a pure laissez-faire situation, but if you took it to the extreme of a pure laissez-faire situation, then even the wages of a person will tend to rise or fall by the relative supply or the relative scarcity of labor. True, labor is a certain commodity within the market, but as the popes have been forever urging, regularly and repeatedly in the documents of Catholic social teaching, there is need to consider the person not merely as one more commodity. The person cannot be merely a means to the making of profit or the means to doing business. Granting that there will be differences in the amount of wage that is possible given the relative supply. Where there's cheap and abundant labor, the wages will go down, but hopefully the prices will be lower. On the other hand, where the laborers are very scarce, their wages will tend to rise. Hopefully they'll be able to pay whatever higher prices there are. But the popes have urged. One thinks, for instance, of Leo XIII in Rerum Navarum, who made the case that a laborer must get a living wage. Pius XI talked about it as a family wage because he saw the interplay of economic considerations with family considerations. It's not that all of what a laborer should get has to be directly in wages. It can be in benefits. It can be in terms of other ways in which the society and the marketplace and other needs and costs that that person will have will be adjudicated. My point is to suggest the complexity of it, but all I mean to suggest is one can't look at only one factor. One must look in making any particular moral action, including an action in the marketplace, including an action of setting wages, establishing contracts, making particular decisions in the marketplace. One must look at the intention of the agents, making sure that there's nothing antithetical to human dignity and to the service of God toward which human dignity is ordered. Secondly, one must look at the circumstances, including the consequences. This is absolutely crucial. And thirdly, one must look at the nature of the act. One must look at its moral species. And one tells its moral species by considering what is the orientation, what is the end directedness, what would this type of act result in if done as a human act. There you can tell what kind of an act it is. And what John Paul II is doing here in his orientation to this whole problem in paragraph 71, 72, and 73 is to suggest that we must look at all of those factors and constantly weigh whatever it is that we are attending to in light of human dignity and the service of God our Lord to which human dignity is directed. We'll consider a little bit more of this in our next lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.